Welcome to Series 3 of The Joy of Writing. I'm your host, Mark Carew, author of three novels, and someone who is interested in how other writers write, why they do it, and the fun or joy they get from their writing. You can leave feedback on any of the episodes at podchaser.com forward slash thejoyofwriting. It's a pleasure to talk with Tom Benjamin again, author of A Quiet Death in Italy, his debut novel published during the COVID-19 lockdown. Tom discusses book deals, launch events, both online and planned, and how authors need to be part of promoting their books. I started by asking Tom about his reaction to the publication of his debut. I think that um, I think I had the strongest reaction, to be honest, when I got the deal, um, and because I, I think that's the moment that most um, aspiring writers really wait for or, yeah. or dream of. Um, you know, writing seems to be a sort of um, a process of always waiting for the next big moment, and. Um, you know, first you're trying to get the agent, and that's huge. Um, and then, in a sense, I think many aspiring writers think once they've got the agent, then that's it. Um, but to be honest with you, that really wasn't my experience or the experience of other writers that I know. Um, and I think that perhaps that's a little oversold um, in the advice and the, the the kind of you know the books that you read about it. Um, they say it's harder to get an agent than a publishing deal. That may be true, but often it can be hard for an agent to get you a publishing deal. I think that's the case, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I know plenty of writers whose agents haven't managed to, to secure them deals or have sent their books out to dozens of publishers without success. I mean, my, my, my book uh, actually, you know, it, it found a publisher relatively quickly within... A matter of a few months, mm-hmm. but it went out to more than a dozen publishers before before it found a a publisher, and that you know of course was just uh, you know the, the my my dream come true. Then of course what they also don't tell you is that um, the publishing process itself takes well it seems to take forever, and. Um, and for me, because of the way that my book was published, what I didn't realise was how little I knew at the beginning of the the, the, the process. A common uh, feeling, I think. So, so it went through various edits and proofreads and so on. It took, you know, a fair amount of time. I, I think from 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 deal to to actually having the paperback published, it was you know way way over a year. Mm. Uh, in the interim, as, as you mentioned, an, an ebook. Um, and, and in fact, Audible uh, version were published. At the time, that didn't really particularly resonate with me because um, the, the publisher um, said that they were really kind of waiting to launch the book formally when the paperback was published, uh, which was going to happen in spring. So I was, you know, obviously really looking forward to that yes. and, um, you know, arranging a launch and so on and so forth. Um, in the UK, because obviously I'm based in Italy. Then, of course, uh, COVID hit, and yep. uh, and so that kind of transformed the context 
of the launch itself. Has it delayed the sort of a, like a physical launch party in in you know whatever location? I was you know I was at the early stages of planning um, uh, um, a launch in a bookshop in, in central London, and I mean you know I'm not one of these kind of you know big hitter <laughs> debuts that you read about that get these multi you know, million pound advances or anything like that. And, you know, this was something that actually I was going to have to arrange myself because, you know, the, the the publishers, and I think this is quite common, it's again something that I've discovered and had no knowledge of previously, but for most debut publishers, uh, uh, authors who aren't, you know, known, um, publishers don't tend to um, really organise launches um, and support launches because they, they, they don't see any kind of economic benefit from it. Right, right. Yeah, they will support you, you know, they'll they'll send books along and they will pay for the, the drinks, mm. um, if you're lucky, um, but that's about mm. it. So, but I, I was, and they will attend, but it's, it's, it's not something that they will kind of say, oh, you know, which I expected, I expected, you know. A sort of launch in a big place and all the rest, but uh, but I found I was having to do it myself, and then of course COVID came along, and and that was um, that, that 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 just was not going to happen. So for me, um, and like most of us, when we were hit by um, you know COVID, um, the whole process became truly kind of unreal. And you know my launch date, May the twenty first, you know came. Um, and I did arrange something for it. Um, I arranged um, a Zoom uh, launch, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which you can find on my um, my website, <laughs> uh, tombenjamin.com, and where I put put the launch. And I I I, I basically just uh, invited uh, you know friends, family, and fellow authors, uh, because I felt that I wanted to mark it, and it and it needed to be marked. Yes. Uh, but of course, it wasn't like anything like I had expected, you know, expected with wine and 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 all the rest. Well, there was wine actually, but, <laughs> but, but just shared between my wife and I and 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 people, you know, throughout the world. In fact, I had I had a. It was actually lovely because there was something that um, I wouldn't have had um, had I had a launch in a bookshop in London, for example. I had I had friends in America. I had a friend in in Alaska. You know, uh, yeah, another nice. friend in Canada, and then friends in, in France and things. So that was lovely, in fact. Well, uh, virtual wine tasting shot up during uh, lockdown, and yeah. I think there's still as much fun, maybe more. I don't know. Um, and I've I've enjoyed a couple. So at least you marked that yeah. momentous occasion. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and you think uh, you know maybe the Central London Bookshop event might go ahead sometime. Yeah. No, no, uh, <laughs> no. I am actually um, planning a sort of secondary launch. Sounds a bit like a, a spaceship or something. Yeah. Uh, in uh, here in Italy, in Bologna, right? Uh, uh, with uh, just you know, with with my Italian friends, uh, because things have, of course, sort of um, relaxed a bit now here and in the UK. I understand, and and also because. Um, Although I don't have an Italian um, publisher as yet, um, you know I would like to, um, you know, mark the occasion here in Italy. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 to be honest, I've got a friend um, who's uh, got a really nice sort of um, artist studio, and it seemed like a great excuse for a party. And and, and uh, so that I'm maybe thinking of even live streaming. I'm not sure, 
um, but that won't take place until the end of September. Right. Um, but, but my second book is out in um, in ebook. I presume it will be out the same time as uh, my first book, which will be like autumn this year. Mm-hmm. So, so in a sense, that will also that kind of secondary launch will probably kind of mark the end of my sort of active publicity around the first around the first book. And your second book, The, the Hunting Season, and there's a, a little extract of it in A Quiet Death in Italy. That, that again, is set in Bologna? Yeah. I mean, mm. the series, uh, the Daniel Esther series, mm. is set in Bologna. You know, it features my English detective basically kind of unravelling the mystery of the city as, mm. as, as he unra- unra- unravels mysteries uh, in the city itself. And, um, yeah, the second book uh, looks at food. If the first book was really around the kind of political and radical roots um, and atmosphere of Bologna, um, I think the second book, The Hunting Season, um, is more, in a sense, concerned about the now of Bologna and the way that Bologna is trying to sort of position itself um, Mm. as Città del Cibo, City of Food. Um, And... And that kind of interest that kind of interested me from a sort of um, an authenticity perspective, really, because it sells itself a lot on authenticity. Mm. And um, you know, Italian culture is very much um, based around the senses. I mean, you know, I- Italian, to my knowledge, is the only uh, word where uh, the only uh, language where uh, beauty is a synonym for good. Yes. And so you have like this, like you know, this this idea, um, and 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 that kind of goes, that sort of drills down into to food and you know authenticity and goodness and beauty, and 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 I, and I found that very very interesting, and I found that an interesting sort of concept to sort of play with, and that kind of fed into uh, stories that I was hearing about the authenticity of. Uh, food um, in the in the area, uh, and specifically truffles and right. the truffle trade, what which is was, worth a lot of money, isn't it? Which is worth a lot of money, yeah. and um, and so I thought that that was kind of worth exploring. And also, we entered the countryside around Bologna, which again is is a bit lesser known, like the city itself, um, Emilia Romagna, um, which yeah. is a kind of wild. Uh, it was very much partisan country. And um, there's still very much a kind of partisan ethos um, in the hills and, and a bit of a kind of a smuggling kind of, you know, culture going on and so on. So I thought I'd play with that really and explore that. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's the sort of subject of the, the, the second book. And was the second book any easier to write than the first? I don't know how long the first might have uh, taken for you to... Yeah, I mean, the first book took... Um, one year plus about I don't know about thirty. Yes, um, <laughs> thirty. Thinking about it, yeah. Yes, in so much as you know, I, I, I've been writing. Well, I've been writing since I can remember. Since I was, you know, started writing my my poetry when I was an Adrian Mole sort of age, and then I then I was writing fiction, and I've been writing fiction since since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and writing books since I was in my sort of mid-twenties, um, and, you know, The, the Quiet Ethnicity was the first book that um, was traditionally published, and in fact I wrote a, another version of it before I um, wrote A Quiet Death in Italy, because I had the idea... Um, 
So I moved to Bologna um, over a dozen years ago, and mm-hmm. well, I actually commuted for a few years after that between London and Bologna every week. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really settle down here um, until about eight years ago or half you. And then I started, um, so I had to sort of learn the language, um, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't an Italophile really before then. I, I came to Italy almost by accident. My wife's Italian. She was offered a job here. Mm-hmm. And and so, which I think, in a sense, was a, an, an advantage because um, for a writer, um, I kind of came to it quite cold. I didn't really have... I, I think it was... Um, I think it's uh, Becky Severnini who was... Uh, who was the London correspondent for Il Corriere della Sera, um, and he wrote um, that foreign writers tend to write about their love affair, uh, mm-hmm. about was it um, something like um, about their love affair with um, Italy or their diaries of disappointment. Oh. <laughs> and I, and I really wanted, and I and I didn't want to write either. Yeah, uh, and and you know, when I, I didn't really have any sort of assumptions about Italy. Um, neither good nor bad, and I hope that my my fiction reflects that, um, because I think that it clearly kind of shows I do, and I have grown to to love Italy. But at the same time, I am sort of like a critical friend, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so, coming to, coming back to my original point and the original inspiration for for the book, so um, I didn't know any Italian before I got here, and I didn't learn any Italian when I was commuting. So I joined a language school, spent three months basically sitting with teenagers discussing the best way to get to a swimming pool. <laughs> and then you'd kind of step into the street and uh, and someone would just go, blah, 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 to you. Yeah, exactly. I have no idea what they were saying. So I thought, well, this is hope- hopeless. And through a friend, because obviously everything in Italy is through a friend, yeah. I, I managed to get a job um, working as basically a bouncer at the door of a homeless canteen. And that's where I spent a year, and it really helped me kind of develop my my Italian, basically, and um, my street Italian, you might Right. Think. And had you had previous work as a bouncer? I don't know if you're a... Are you, are you that type of person? No, and I'm, you know, I'm definitely not that type of person at all. Um, but I would say I had one very useful qualification, which was I'm six foot three. Right. Uh, and although not, I'm not kind of you know built, you know, um, like a rugby player or whatever. I am, you know, quite a lot taller than the average Italian. Mm. So, so, so that uh, was my main qualification, uh, basically. And you got the job. Uh, yeah, and and you know, I, and and it, and 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 it was a real eye opener. Um, obviously, I mean, you know, I actually have a background in international development as well as. Mm-hmm. Uh, policing and, um, and as a reporter and I'd, you know, and I'd spent a lot of time in the, the, the developing world and, um, and um, uh, been, been in lots of sort of challenging environments but to be honest it had always been sort of like a professional tourist I yeah. would sort of go in and go out, I might stay for a while in some places but it was always a place that I could leave but now I was going in day in, day out and yeah of course I was still sort of detached from it but I was also having to um, you know, be pretty hands-on um, in certain circumstances and so on. And 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 I was exposed to an Italy that, um, you know, most tourists obviously never sort of see. Yeah, and that's the thing that really began to interest me. I was thinking, 
not exactly that this is the real Italy because there are many Italys, there are many, you know, Britons and so on. But this is a very interesting Italy that people don't really see. And I thought, wouldn't this be interesting to write about? And so with the first book I started, and my first book was a lot more sort of, or you might say even more gritty um, than, than, than A Quiet Death in Italy. And, and, and so I started writing about this and this world and so on. Um, and also because I'd also written, read a book, um, Naples 44, by Norman Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, which was fantastic. It was basically his true account of his time as a, as a secret policeman in charge of Naples at the end of the Second World War. And I just thought, wow, what a fantastic context. Mm-hmm. So the two together, I had this, that was my idea. My idea was, you know... Um, basically to, to, to look at modern-day Italy through the eyes of a British policeman, or in my case, a private private investigator. Because you get a lot of um, writers, um, you know, who, who, who have Italian policemen in Italy. But I really like the way that he looked at Italy from an outsider's perspective and could, you know, compare it. And, and you know, I wasn't going to pretend to sort of be an Italian. I thought it was far more interesting from my perspective to, to look at Italy through the eyes of someone who's living there and but not not actually Italian. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean it's a it's a good concept. What what did um, your Italian friends, if they've read the book, have they had any reaction to you writing about their um society and their city? I, I you know, I was quite pleased by their reaction, to be honest with you. Um, no one turned around and said, Well this is just ridiculous, this is yeah. rubbish, this is yeah. nonsense uh, which I think is always the risk. You know, and because I really didn't want to sort of write this, um, well, I, I didn't want to be inaccurate, to be honest with you. I mean, the, yeah. the whole point of my book is, um, well, I wouldn't say the whole point is accuracy, because of course it's a fiction, um, and of course I do have to sort of play with certain aspects of it to make it work. Um, but at the same time, I wanted it to feel true. And and uh, you know a lot of the the comments and the observations I make about Italy are derived through my Italian friends. Mm. Um, so um, so yeah, I find their response quite heartening. And and to be honest, if they told me that there was something they didn't like, I would change it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly smacked of authenticity to me, and it seems to be confirmed by your your friends. And you're right. I mean, it is fiction, but it's got to be believable fiction. Yeah. You know, you're inventing a. A simulation in a story world, so at least get the world right. That's very interesting and, and good to see you've got second one coming out and maybe a third uh, percolating in the um, in the brain somewhere. Yeah, well, it was a three book contract. Uh-huh, um, okay. uh huh. So yeah, so I'm um, contracted for the third, and I've I've got about ten thousand words down um, on that at the moment. And, and the looming deadline. Uh, yeah, a line. <laughs> I mean, the first uh, the, the the publisher is reasonably um, reasonable with deadlines. I mean, I have basically about a year to write every book, um, which came in really useful for the second book, as the first version I submitted um, they didn't like very much um, uh, because it wasn't so much the content as the tone Mm -hmm. and also I was like running with too many plots they felt Um, uh, because you know I'd had the first one published and I felt with the second one I I felt I wanted to be a bit more fluid and free Mm -hmm. um, and freewheeling if you like a bit more panzer as as, as people 
Okay? And, and, you know, I, I, I thought that it worked, but they felt that um, there was just too much going on in it. So basically I had to do a huge rewrite um, which took me months. Can you like most of the book, are we, or half the book? Or Yeah, I, I, I mean, basically, I managed to scrape about 20% mm. from, uh, from uh, the, 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 the first version. Right. That's, you know, another 60,000 words fresh. Ouch. So, so yeah, so, but they were right. Um, at the time, I, um, you know, at the time, it, you know, it hit me pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I have to say my editor uh, Christina Green is is really spot on and um, and you know although you know sometimes you know these comments can be difficult to sort of take on reflection she turns out to be right so I, I do have quite a lot of faith in her yeah. yeah well I mean great stuff I mean these are the trials and tribulations aren't they I mean you know asking for a major rewrite um, asking for minor edits it's always yeah. it's always extra work to do very very interesting Tom and thanks thanks for talking about this I look forward to hearing from you about um, your advice to uh, anyone brave and crazy enough to to try and write a book <laughs> so until next time thank you very much indeed I will indeed be talking with Tom again about advice to aspiring writers in the next episode, and we will also hear more about Naples 44, the book that Tom found so inspirational.